My mom is fabulous, fantastic, she's phenomenal and funny. When I hold my hand out, she's inclined to give me love and money. She's my mom, and I love her so. Come on! Yo, mom, you rock! It's the most popular, respected occupation of any. I've been listening to your show because my mom would listen to them. Mom, I know I don't say this often enough, but I just wanted to let you know. I'm a huge fan of people who get things done, who make things happen versus watch and wonder what happened. I don't normally create comparisons or put one group or gender ahead of another. But today, in honor of Mother's Day, I want to put all the mums out there on a magnificent pedestal. Your ability to give birth, to nurture, provide, guide, share, teach, and encourage. Your ability to mentor is a gift to all humanity. And many of you do all of that and more by working one or more jobs, being a lifeline to aging parents, being a good friend, sibling, partner, and advocate. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. And this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I also want to acknowledge my mom. My mom isn't with us anymore. She died of old age in her early 50s. Exhausted from a tough and demanding life, her body and mind just wasn't strong enough to fight off a disease. She left us so young, but she also left us with memories and lessons that last a lifetime. My mom was born a depression baby on a small farm just outside of Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. Her mom had her out of wedlock, and in those days, you buried that shame. My mom was 13 before she found out that her older sister, Anna, was actually her mom. My mom spent time living in a convent. The second she could, she chose her own path in life. She moved to Vancouver, then joined the Air Force, and there she met my dad. Together they had four children. I'm the second oldest. My early years were incredible. My dad was my hero, my mom was my Yoda. My mom taught me how to read full novels and even type before I entered grade school. Type. Back then, a typewriter was uh, the tool of an office worker or a journalist or somebody in the academia. And then a mental illness struck my father. In those days, it was called manic depressive. Today, it's bipolar. My dad self-medicated through alcohol and would go on binges spending money we didn't have. We were forever in danger of losing it all. What kept us going was my mom. She was tireless, tireless, relentless, even after a night of carnage and disruption. Fighting with my father to the early hours of the morning, she'd still find the strength to get on a bus, go to work, earn and hide enough money to keep us going. She sewed our clothes and found an escape in that sewing machine or when she had the strength, painting natural landscapes on wood or canvas if she could afford one. My dad died many years after my mom and thankfully with his disease in check and the love of his children and grandchildren. And I hope that my dad and mom are back together in the afterlife with the love they had before mental illness took it away. And for me, and I know my sisters feel the same, we'd give anything for one more day with our mom. I tell her how much I love her and the treasures she gave to me. In my veins pump her creativity, her resilience, her sense and sensibility, and yes, her defiance. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. As I used to write in my Mother's Day cards to you, roses are red, violets are blue. My mom is lovely through and through. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. You're listening to Chatter That Matters presented by RBC. 
We're doing a special Mother's Day edition. Today, I'm going to be chatting with two extraordinary mothers, human beings, and business leaders. Mary DePauli holds one of the top banking jobs in North America, and Michelle D'Emmanuel holds one of the top healthcare jobs in North America. We're going to learn how they do it all and also learn about the world they work in. Michelle D'Emmanuel is the CEO of Trillium Health Partners. She's a wonderful mom, mentor, and one of Canada's most admired leaders. Her career spans banking, real estate, government, gaming. Today, she's the president and chief executive officer of Trillium Health Partners. They're one of the largest community-based, affiliated acute care facilities in North America. Michelle, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Hi, Tony. How are you? There's three things I want to talk to you about. You're one of Canada's most admired leaders. I want to learn about your approach to life, balance, leadership, and lessons we can apply to our lives and our career. Two, I want to go to the front line of healthcare, lessons you've learned, and what's it going to take going forward to achieve what appears to be opposing forces, delivering exceptional healthcare for the taxpayer, but healthcare the taxpayer can afford. And third, Canada. The global population could top 10 billion by 2050. Where can Canada lead in nourishing all these people while sustaining planet Earth? Everyone I have talked to who knows you describes you as passionate, brilliant, enthusiastic, forceful, and positive. You must have been a bit of a handful to your parents growing up. Take me back to that time. Well, you know, two words immediately came to mind, and they can't, they were words that my mother used to say, petulant and precocious. Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I come by it honestly, I have to say. But uh, yes, I... There have been times in my life when my my father's looked at my own children and uh, in one of those moments and, and looked at me and he said, it's all coming back to you, my dear. It's all coming back to you. But yes, uh, I think I was a little bit of a handful. What was the most important lesson that your mom taught you? My mom was a single parent. She was divorced in the first year divorce was legal in Canada. So when I, I think about my mom, I think about her and I together uh, going out into that world where she now had to be the single income earner, had to raise a child. You know, she was my best friend. Uh, she was my greatest supporter. She was my um, very uh, empathetic critic at times. And, um, you know, there's not a day since she's passed on that I don't speak about her. This will be my moment today that we're talking about my mom. She, uh, she lives on each and every day, the single most important person in my life. In an interview that I watched, you mentioned that early in your career, you had the great fortune to work for two incredible leaders, John Sweeney and George Thompson. Each of them taught you a powerful lesson in life. What were those lessons? I was 21, 22 years old, and I had the great fortune of getting a, a job down at Queen's Park. And John Sweeney was a minister of community and social services, and George Thompson was a deputy minister at the time. And they taught me three things. The, the first thing is the importance of values, principles and values, the grounding sort of uh, uh, part of any individual and and how if you were grounded on those things, you could really move forward on any difficult moment or or any sense of mission you might have. The, the second thing was good government is good politics. And, and just always having a, a moment where you know that doing the right thing um, is, is going to hold you in good stead. There's never a wrong time to do the right thing. But the last thing was at such an early age, I was able to see really stellar leadership. You know, I I had worked at a, at a very young age for uh, Mr. Davis, uh, our premier who had just been exiting as he retired from politics. Uh, John Sweeney, George Thompson, these were exceptional, uh, both civil servants and political leaders. And, you know, when you see leadership at that high, high quality, as you go through your career, you, you really can differentiate then 
what is maybe not such stellar leadership. So it was a formidable part of my journey. Authenticity. When you're talking to young people, you talk about the importance of being authentic to who you are versus what others might want to be. What do you mean by that? You know, you got to be real. People can tell and can see through you when you're not who you are or you're not being real and that authentic you. And that comes from being able to have that core set of values and principles about who you are and and how you're described. And and so the the first piece of advice is um, be comfortable in being you. And and it's and and that sometimes will create relationships that maybe are not working or create fantastic opportunities. But there's nothing better than going into something where you know you are comfortable with who you are because you start from a position of strength. The second thing I would say when I talk to younger people is I, I actually, you know, we often talk about, you know, their next job or career or what have you. It comes back to what I just said to you earlier. I often coach uh, younger folks to say, pick great leaders because great leader, leaders create great work. Be less focused on the title, the job itself but rather the environment that that leader is going to create for your success. And, and then just lastly, I often will, um, will say that, you know, the two most important values uh, of integrity and empathy uh, will, will hold you in good stead uh, in your journey. I'm chatting with Michelle D'Emmanuel. She's the president and chief executive officer at Trillium Health Partners. Fast and as hard as you climbed, you were often underpaid or your intentions were considered aggressive versus a man who might be labeled as forceful. How did you overcome these biases and what advice can you bring to others who might be discriminated because of their gender, race, sexuality, disabilities, or even age? Thank you for the question because it's really important um, as you navigate uh, through your career and it comes back to how do you navigate in those situations but stay real and true to yourself, right? And and it's uh, it's never, that's not an easy journey and I think the complexity of that in, in our world today when we, we talk about what is going on around racism, et cetera, um, it is, it's becoming not only an important continued dialogue, but an essential one. So let me be, um, let me start with, it was, it was definitely uh, an environment in that, in that period where you had one female deputy, there were, there were additional deputies that were added to the table as I was, you know, rising in my career, but, but there was no doubt that there was a stigma or a dialogue that occurred for female leaders in, in that environment. And I, I don't think it's unique to public service, by the way, uh, where women were described differently. They were tenacious or they were they were tough instead of tenacious. They were um, aggressive. Um, they were outspoken. And these were just words that were never used uh, typically with with the male leaders. The one that used to always um particularly irked me was when I was I was witnessing or told, well, you're being emotional. So somehow passion and a real commitment to a mission was now emotional, but not, you know, visionary. And as you move up, of course, you take that responsibility on to bring others with you, other women, uh, persons of color, et cetera, who could be there in an environment where they would feel safe to be who they are and to raise their hand at a moment of conflict and not to be seen then uh, uh, of driving conflict, but but trying to debate something. That was the other one I used to love that you were, you know, you were 
tough and tenacious and debating all the time, as opposed to just trying to get to a better solution. And so I can't say it's a, there's a magic formula, but I think at the heart of it was, again, knowing who you are, uh, self-aware to adjust where it was appropriate to, to round out some of the edges, maybe, but also working in environments with leaders and people who promoted equity, who who actually walked the talk, lived the values, and and their actions spoke uh, uh, spoke louder than words. I saw an interview where you talked about balance, and you talked about three things are important: family, career, and you. That was a learning because when I started my journey, women often talked about work-life balance. And as I went through the journey, I realized it was really a, a three-part scale that there's absolutely, you know, work and having a way to put the goalposts around your time spent at work and your energy spent at work to absolutely as a mother, a wife, a friend, et cetera, you have to in your life uh, parcel out time. And then lastly, this was really the aha learning as I really got into my 40s is understanding that there's always something to give to work and there was always something to give to the family, but there has to be something that you're giving to yourself. You have to keep yourself healthy and strong so that you can give to the other two sides. And and so just really understanding that three-part balance, I thought, was for me uh, uh, absolutely a game changer. And, and I started to then think about every 90 days, am I generally getting it right? Am I generally balancing it right? And if I'm not, making that calibration for the next 90 days. And you have to actually work at it. You have to schedule things. You have to reflect. You have to ask for feedback. And if you don't do that, it's very difficult to balance. What did you mean in a, in a paper where you, that you wrote where you said leadership matters from the boardroom to the bedside? Leadership is really about followership. And it's ensuring that the kinds of decisions and the vision that you're setting out are such that you can bring a group of people with you to achieve a goal. And so when I talk about the boardroom to the bedside, I'm really talking about what is it we are doing in leadership that is allowing our frontline, in this case, our healthcare frontline, to be successful in supporting patient care. And so there has to be a tether to that. And if you don't have leadership at all levels, and I'm, I'm not just talking about formal leadership, but the culture of leadership where people take responsibility and lead in a moment, that can be as simple as the um, environmental service worker who asks the patient while they're cleaning a room, can I get you a glass of water? That's leadership at the bedside. And that is enabled by a culture that really creates the environment for all of the people in uh, healthcare to take initiative. A Deloitte Insight study says that from 20 years from now, cancer and diabetes could join polio's defeated diseases. Prevention and early diagnosis will be the central to the future of health. The onset of a disease in some cases could be delayed or eliminated altogether. Do you feel that that's possible? Do you think there should be two-tier medicine? And I'm not talking about those who can afford and those who can't, but those who choose to make their health a matter of choice, exercise, not smoking, etc., versus others that don't. So there's no doubt, Tony, that the advancements in science and innovation have led to discoveries that are allowing us to find things sooner, to manage things longer, and in some cases eliminate. But I don't believe in the next 20 years we should 
anticipate of the cure for uh, many diseases. What I do think we will see is that innovations will lead to our ability to manage and to extend life longer. We've seen that even in such things as um, dialysis. You know, we used to only have dialysis in a hospital. Now you can have dialysis at your home. It's allowing us to manage that disease differently and in a way that hopefully provides a better quality of life. Screening. We have developed so many screening tools over the last decade. That will help us detect sooner. And in some cases, like colon cancer, really give outcomes uh, for individuals at a much higher level in a more positive way than we had seen in the last 20 years. I believe that innovation and science is leading to really that complete shift from what was a post-World War II acute care health system to really a chronic disease management system, this sense of the patient as your partner, the patient wrapped around the system that allows the patient navigation to be much easier because you could find yourself within the system at any part of your life for a more extended period. Michelle, we look to the future. You're the kind of person that has the experience I wish every politician had. Not-for-profit, for-profit, you've made mission-critical decisions. So I'm going to ask you to look forward as we look at 10 billion people by 2050, sustainability, climate change, all these major forces have changed. Canada, only 38 million people right now, abundance of intellectual natural resources. What role can Canada play in creating a healthy planet and a healthy human race? You know, Tony, I do think Canada is well positioned to lead in this area. It can be as simple as what we are doing to create new industries in healthcare, what we can do then to scale those industries beyond our walls and how that leads to greater GDP that can be reinvested into our healthcare system. But when you think about what we're creating, solutions, technologies, AI, the ability to drive virtual solutions, the fact that we're doing that on a platform of such a diverse country does allow us to then treat the world in a sense. And then when you put it into a package of our work in clean tech, our natural resources, which you just talked a little bit about, our ability to be conveners in the world and not aggressors, that creates, again, additional assets for us to lead in helping the world be a healthier and a more compassionate world going forward. The real question is, are we prepared to lead? And especially post-COVID, where we have seen our ability to be nimble around innovation at the front line of healthcare, particularly in virtual, as one example, and particularly in creating new um, solutions for the delivery of care during this time. Coming up next is Mary DePauli. She'll share how she turned her intern job at CNN, which also included getting Larry King's dinner on a Sunday night in one of the most successful careers in Canada. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Women-led enterprises are key to Canada's economy, and RBC is helping to accelerate and grow these businesses, sponsoring the RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Awards, a celebration of impact and achievement, and CEO, a radically generous community supporting women working on the world's to-do list. Women-led businesses and the economy matters to RBC. Welcome back to our Mother's Day special. Joining me now is Mary DePauli. The best way to describe Mary, she's a positive force of human nature. She's an incredible mother, partner, her entire extended family. She's involved in the community and giving back. 
She holds one of the most powerful strategic and marketing positions in North America, and she manages to do it all with calmness, confidence, and conviction. Mary, welcome to Chatter That Matters. And my first question is, how do you do it all? Well, that's very kind. Um, You know what? I'll, I'll start by saying every day is different. And, uh, you know, you begin Monday a certain way and by noon it looks completely different. So, you know, I would say that um, you have to know what comes first. And, you know, only you know the answer to that question as an individual. For me, the answer is my girls come first always. Um, and I've just been blessed to be a mother. And I and I, I view that um, as just, you know, the, the greatest purpose uh, that, that I could ever have been given in my life. Um, you know, but, but days are complicated. So the way I start every day is, um, I'll start being just very highly organized. And I think, you know, as I've observed people that I've admired, the one trait that they've got is that they are highly, highly organized, but they're able to pivot as things change. And so, you know, you've got to let go of certain tasks in a day in favor of tasks that are going to be more important. Um, you've got to remember the priority in your mind and in your life, and you've got to stick to it and not not be apologetic about it. And um, and I think the other, the other thing is you've just got to learn how to be resilient because if you beat yourself up every day, that takes time, and it's time you don't have. So being planful, just knowing what you want to get out of a day, and, and spending time where it matters would be the things that – I think have just, you know, been helpful. But look, it's hard, right? I mean, there's there's been no perfect day and you uh, you just have to make the best of it and and um, and not beat yourself up. I mean, you talk about this sense of uh, wonderment and having these children and what you give, but you're also in part of an enterprise and in any given day might suddenly call up and say, we need your strategic mind here. If you talk about pivoting, how do you pivot so effortlessly and not feel guilty because obviously you're sacrificing one thing for another when your day is that full. So, so I'll start by saying, I don't use the word sacrifice. I use the word choice. If it ever felt like a sacrifice, I'm doing it wrong. Um, so for me, everything is a choice and, and you're right. I mean, certain days, uh, I mean, I remember when, you know, for example, my kids were younger and they'd go through the night with toothaches and flus and, and all the rest of it, but I might've had a board meeting the next morning at 8am and I've got to be ready for it. And I've got to be ready, you know, um, in terms of what they expect of me and also what I expect of myself, which, you know, in, in all cases is pretty high performing. Um, you just have to drive through it and, um, and know that leaving things to the last minute is usually a recipe for disaster. So if, for example, if I know I've got something on a Tuesday and it's important, I will start mentally preparing for it and, writing it out and speaking to people and iterating in my mind. It might be on a drive home or it could just be at my desk with some notes weeks before. So that if I ever run out of time, the, you know, the day before, the moment before, I'm still going in at 99%. Um, so it's just about being very planful about what you know is expected of you and not to leave things to the last minute. And you, you talk about, I want to spend a little bit of time what you just said. So as you're starting to think about the big events that are coming up, you actually will go through in your mind scenarios of what might happen and what might unfold so that you're, so you're mentally creating this sort of, uh, chest of treasures that you can draw upon if needed. Yeah. Is that something that you, you, just comes naturally to you? Is that something you kind of learned along the way? No, I think you learn with experience. I mean, certainly when I was younger, um, you know, you learn by trial and error. Um, but as I got older, you know, being organized, being planful, knowing what's expected of you, knowing when the moments that matter are coming up, 
and being ready for them. Um, you know, I had a great mentor um, in a gentleman by the name of Gary Brent, who used to run the global wealth management department at uh, TD Canada Trust. I remember one day he pulled me into a meeting and I had absolutely no warning, but I needed to know in that moment what my department had to contribute. And and fortunately for me, I was able to just rattle it off because I'd been thinking about it and I'd been preparing for that moment deliberately or not deliberately, probably for a long time. But, you know, knowing what you are good at, being ready, having the information, surrounding yourself with people that are constantly sharing with you and having curiosity, you'll typically be ready to mobilize when you need to. Talk to me a little bit about curiosity because you use the word you're very organized and you're methodical. That's not always in the same attribute set of somebody that's curious who might be just think nothing about spending two hours just letting their brain meander trying to look for some nuggets how do you how do you have that left brain and right brain working so yeah that's a great question um i'll call it organized curiosity i will i mean i live in a highly structured life at least for right now. Um, My job is very structured. Um, My life as a mom is very structured. It's around two people that, you know, that need me for various, for various things and my daughters. Um, So what I will do is I will carve out structured time to read and think and, and just not have an agenda. It is amazing Um, you know, how people feel when there is a moment in time where they don't have an agenda, if they're very agenda driven all the time. And so I will ensure my weekends are wide open. I will ensure some evenings are wide open because as a marketer, I need that creativity. Like I need to be able to think and freeform and be curious and explore because if I'm not, the the work will never have the potential that it needs. So I want to spend a little bit of time with your earlier career and I know you're from Hamilton and, you know, as a friend, I know that you're, uh, you know, that you just have this real sense of uh, being with real people and all that comes from coming out of a, a smaller town. But you ended up in Washington and you're working in the newsroom of CNN. How did that happen? Um, so I graduated um, from Western and decided that the most compelling place at that moment in time in 1992 was in Washington. It was the Bush-Clinton election, and it was such an interesting time in American politics. I found a program that allowed me to have what we know today as work-integrated learning. Um, And so that work-integrated learning or internship took me to CNN, um, which was a -a two-day-a-week stint for a student. It truly was one of the most incredible things that I think I, I could have done in my life. I learned so much, not just scholastically, but about work and, and the experiences that uh, you have with international students. And did you did you find being in that sort of environment where you have to get a, the news out, that, that sense of deadline, did that help sort of prepare you for where you are now, where you must be dealing with constant deadlines? Constant deadlines, you know, um, reputational risk, crisis communications, um, you know, the, the demands of, of, you know, your staff, right, because they need you. Um, it did. And CNN, you know, at the time was still quite novel. It was the first 24-hour newsroom that uh, that was in existence. And now, of course, news is, is omnipresent. And I would say the big thing that I learned was do 
every single job you possibly can put your your hands on. And I, I will tell any young person that, you know, if they ask you to grab coffee, grab it. Um, you know, I was in a situation where I would order Larry King's dinner every Sunday. He, I still remember he like lemon chicken and I would be the first to order it because I could give it to him and then sit down with him and ask him what he thought about the people he was about to interview. And so, you know, or, you know, I'll write the news, I'd fix the printer. It didn't matter. You're about to bump into someone that could change the trajectory of your life. So be humble, do it all, right? Just do it all because that's how everybody learns in the beginning. Do you find that this, you know, everybody sort of stereotypes this generation versus that. Do you think this new generation where the world's within arm's reach of desire, where they can they can escape in a moment into their mobile phones. Do you think that they have the same appreciation for what's happening around them that you you had in that newsroom? I, I hate to categorize any generation. There's so much that young kids today can have instantly. And so they're receiving little bursts of gratification almost every few seconds. I would, I would just advise that it's not just about what's happening or what you're reading, but like, do you have an opinion on it? How deep is that opinion? How well-rounded is that opinion? And have you ever paused just to, just to stop and, and think through what implications might be for you or your community or your country? Do you think business can find that magic spot, continue to find that magic spot where they have those deep, meaningful relationships, knowing that the sense of immediacy is something that they value? Yeah, I absolutely do. Um, you know, what What I would say there is I'll, I'll talk about banking, but I think the this notion of customer intimacy and the customer experience applies, of course, to any industry. You know, in banking, though, people will still view their money as being a very personal thing. And, and, and those life events where money is an enabler of something bigger is where I think a lot of companies are, are focused on more now than ever before. You know, a first house or, you know, uh, a vacation home or buying a car or taking a trip or whatever that, that definition of a momentous life event might be. You want to know that you're sitting across the desk from someone that can actually help you make a great decision for a great outcome. How you build a legacy. That's not something you can just sort of, you know, thumb on your phone and, and figure out fairly easily. Um, you know, how you plan for the future, how you plan to leave something behind. These are things that require people and relationships and knowledge and and understanding it's eq and iq and and banks play a huge role in the culmination of that experience where where banks and other companies are playing less of a role is when things are just kind of quick utility it's an irritant if you've got to go into a bank and deposit a check so why not put that functionality online and make it mobile you've now suddenly made me a believer in your service because you just saved me time i think what you're seeing is a separation between the utility that can often cause friction or is of less value, you want to automate all of that. But where it counts, we actually want to double down on those moments because those are the moments that matter to people. So you're dealing with a, a world where a lot of employees are being asked to do more with less. And at the same time, an organization that says, I'm going to double down on relationships. How do you ensure that you free up the time so that people can make that effort so it doesn't look like faux relationship it doesn't look like it's just a glossy brochure but you're actually imagining that person's first home or you're so excited that they're going on a holiday and you've you've helped them be part of it. in other words how do you go from kind of just telling your story that we're a bank to becoming part of theirs yeah so i think the key there is the talent 
And that's where HR departments are incredibly powerful in an organization because you want to recruit and train and keep people that understand you know, the life of a customer and the experiences of a customer is where you make or break a brand. And I've always believed that a company's frontline people are the best ambassadors that they have for their brand. You can, you know, you can do media buys and, and TV ads all you want, but if that experience at the frontline is mediocre or negative, it'll make or break a brand, especially in today's world of social media where we share everything. So I think it all begins with the mindset of the person you're hiring. You know, are they customer focused? Are they intuitive? Are they curious? Are they friendly? Do they have EQ as well as IQ? And importantly, do they have AQ, adaptability quotient? So are they able to look into a conversation and say, you know what, this might actually be something different than it appears. Can I probe and adapt and figure out what this person really needs? That's where the value comes in. And it all starts with people. So if you could go back and think of yourself as that young Mary, whether it was at CNN or when you first moved into financial services, what advice do you wish you had back then? I think when I look back, there would probably be two things that I would tell my younger self. The first would be, don't be so hard on yourself, right? Be, be kind to yourself. Um, you know, we, we always talk about things like the imposter syndrome and, you know, are we ever good enough, smart enough, um, witty enough, uh, ready enough? Um, you know, and I think, I think as long as you've got the fundamentals and you work hard and you're a good person and you're curious and, and you're eager to learn, um, if you're not hard on yourself, you, you'll go a lot further. The second thing that I would say is, you know, you are the sum total of the five people that you spend the most time with, you've got to pick wisely. So when you think about who you spend time with the most, you know, this is the group that influences how you think, raises you up or holds you down, inspires you or detracts from your stride. And so who you spend your time with is a pretty big indicator of, of how you will operate day to day, week to week, month to month. Picking people that are additive to you and you being additive to someone else, I think, is a is a really important thing to, to, to think about. And I will just often take stock of who am I really spending a lot of time with, you know, day to day, week to week. And is it healthy? Is it, are these healthy relationships? Mary, when I talk to great leaders, they always talk about their mentors. You must have had some mentors. Who were they and what lessons did they tell you? Um, I'll tell you the, the way I viewed mentors before is different than I view it now. Today, my mentors are young people, young kids that are now in the office with a different point of view. And I, I will micro mentor with them. And usually it's reverse mentoring. So I will spend 15, 20 minutes with them and get them to download, you know, something happening in pop culture or just the way they're viewing the world. And it's these sort of micro mentoring moments that I'm getting from young, younger people. And that's how I view mentoring today. I've been very fortunate to have four mentors that have just meant the world to me. Um, Don Stewart was one of them. He, he was the CEO of, of Sun Life Financial. And in Don, he taught me to have a global view, not a local view. And, you know, the best of what you learn around the world, you can always apply to your local day to day. And it was just a very different way of viewing the world. In Jennifer Torrey, I learned about resilience. So Jennifer has spent 42 years at Royal Bank and grew up in banking when it was a very male-dominated industry. 
The lessons she's taught me about resilience and how to spot talent has been phenomenal. Kevin Doherty, I would say, is another mentor. Through Kevin, it was about walking the talk, right? If you want to be a, a great leader, you've got to walk that talk. And, and I learned more from Kevin about leadership than, than anyone else. And the fourth mentor and last mentor that I'll call upon is, um, is you. And I will never forget the day that I met you and uh, what was supposed to be, you know, a one hour lunch just to kind of get to know you as, as a name in the industry turned into this three hour deconstruction of the creative class and humanity and, and everything else. And what I learned from you, you are one of those rare people that never lost your thirst for life never taking things too seriously. I watched you as a father raise two incredible girls who are now unbelievably successful in their jobs, but really as people. And they got a lot of that from you. I mean, you are just someone that knows how to live. And it's amazing the older you get, how much people lose that zest for life, but you've always retained it. And I just admire you for kind of the, the example that you lead as a, as a business person and the example that you lead as, as a father. And uh, you've always inspired me. I'm glad the uh, listener can't see me blush. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, Mom. It's Tony Chapman and you listen to Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Let's chat soon. Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.